Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. The darkness has found you. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 24. I'm your host, Jason Hill. And I'm so tired. So very, very tired. We've come to the end of Season 4. End of our long journey, Hillheads. I've overwritten the safety protocols and my finger rests on the Horror Hill kill switch. After that, I will open the blackout curtains on my studio window and allow the first rays of the morning sun to fall upon my impure flesh and end this horrid existence, freeing my soul from the bonds of living death. Remember, back in the day, we used to have a vampire who worked at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights? Yeah, that guy. You remember the time when he cursed me with undeath? No, it's seriously on there somewhere. You might have to go back a little bit. Yeah, you'll find it. Mm. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. However, 
Before I say goodbye to the night, I have a little story for you. This one comes from talented Horror Hill newcomer and fellow Delawarean Siobhan Carroll. And then that's it. After the last line is read, Horror Hill will be gone forever. Until season five. Shall we? You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Thank you for your support. Now... Allow me to escort you to a place where the sun dies and nightmares come to life. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. You haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. And now, without further ado, from author Siobhan Carroll, I give you... Haunt. May 31st, 1799, Indian Ocean. 17 degrees 10 minutes north, by reckoning 9 degrees west off Cape Negray. Swift did not think about the Zong. The Minerva was a different kind of ship, plagued by different kinds of misery. Her hull, for one, Swift did not like the feel of the boards beneath the waterline. Leaning over the jolly boat's gunwale, he plunged his arm deeper into the ocean, seeking further damage. How's she fair? Swift shook the water off his arm. A stern lake between wind and water, he said. Tis an ill wound for an old ship to bear. He glanced at the sun, a yellow smear in a haze of grey. A storm was brewing. And her hull once copper plating? De stated. An able seaman. He heard what Swift did not say. We must move quickly. Pass him the oakum, boy. There were three of them in the jolly boat. De to manage the oars, Swift to patch, and the watchboy to assist and learn. But, like her mistress, the Minerva's jolly boat was ill-provided for the sea, and the boy had been bailing since they'd launched her. Swift reached for the oakum himself. Do you mind how the patch goes? Decur said to the boy, as Swift stuffed the sticky fibers between the boards and laid over the tarred canvas. When the waves surge high, the oakum will swell. The leak will suck the canvas inwards, stopping her mouth. Decurus raised the oar to fend off the hull. The jolly boat knocked against the ship anyway, a jolt that shuddered into their bones. Aye, the boy said. He left off bailing and was staring intently at the horizon. Look, he said suddenly. To starboard, something in the sky. Swift wiped algae scum onto his trousers. Hand me the sheet lead, he said. A haunt, the boy said. It follows us. The sheet lead, Swift snapped. And quick about it, 
but it was the Kurs who handed Swift the gray sheet of metal and who helped him nail it to the Minerva's hull. Like Swift, the Kurs did not scan the horizon for phantoms. He kept his eyes trained on his hands, on the work that could save or kill them. A nightmare life and death, the boy breathed, just as the ballad said. A devil take your ghosts. Swift ran his hand over the edge of the sheet lead, making sure the patch lay flush. There was something in the corner of his eye, a flicker of white. Back aboard ship, Swift was taken aside by Captain Maxwell. How's she fair? Swift rubbed his chin thoughtfully. His hands were still gummy with the oakum pine tar that gave sailors their name. It smelled like a distant forest, like a place he'd never see. A patch will hold, Swift said. But if the seas run high again... Maxwell stroked his beard. Swift could see the man considering his charge. The Minerva was a three-masted ship with eleven passengers aboard, forty-eight crew, and a cargo of teak bound from Madras. The turn back to Rangoon would delay the shipment by weeks, and the company must have its profits. I should not have shipped on the Minerva, Swift thought. I should have waited for a better berth. The coast is a lee shore, the captain said, and her waters are shallow. We will make for Madras. He coughed wetly against his arm. Then he said, awkwardly, The serang says one of the Lascars saw... Something in the swells. Did you happen to spy anything? In the waves? Near the windlass, the Kurs was scolding the boy. The boy protested vigorously, pointing toward the horizon. No, sir, Swift said. We saw nothing. Nothing at all. The gale blew into their teeth on the 1st of June, a choking whirl of greenish mist. She's taken on water, came the cry from below. Swift clung close to the windward rigging of the main mast as he climbed, flattening his body against the damp ropes. Far below him, the deck heaved with the rising swells. On the yard, he pressed his belly against the hard beam and stepped sideways onto the shivering foot rope. It was his stomach now that bore his weight as his hands clawed in the heavy canvas of the main sail. Beside him, two other able seamen did the same, rushing to tie up the ship's largest sail before the winds rose. A cry rang down the yard. One of the Chinese sailors had straightened up, pointing at something behind curtain of rain. Swift hastily turned back to his reef knot even as the Chinese sailor straightened further, pressing his weight back on the foot rope at the very moment the ship rolled. A flurry of motion, and the man fell out of Swift's vision. A crash below told Swift the sailor had slammed into the deck. A kind of death and drowning, the old salt said. In the rising wind, the Chinese sailor's loose canvas flapped like the wing of an angry bird. Belay that sail! Alaskar slid sideways in the yard to take his shipmate's place. The Indian sailor worked quickly, his eyes intent on the task. His own reef knots tied, Swift pulled himself back to the standing rigging and slid back to the frenzy of the deck. 
The Chinese sailor's body rested amidships. His fellow seamen stepped around him, their eyes on their assigned lines. Swift leaned over the man, the young fellow, his eyes wide, staring at the sky. A red stain spread beneath his body, mingling with the wash on the deck. He saw a ghost, said the second belay, eyes on his line. That's what he screamed, a sick guaylo in the waves. Belay that nonsense. Swift ran his palm over the Chinese sailor's eyes, doing what he could to close them. When he raised his hand, a half-moon of white showed through, as though the man's spirit studied Swift from the other side. Swift felt a chill that had nothing to do with his sodden clothing or the rising gale. Pumps in full labor, said a voice. It was Manbacus, one of the Lascars. She takes water. Swift felt the heaviness in his gut, what the old dogs called the sinking feeling. He hoped it would not come to that. Crouched in the forecastle, the starboard watch discussed the rumors. The sails were close-reefed and the leak patched, but still the Minerva took on water. They said the bilge smelled almost sweet. A bad sign. The Lascars say there's a haunt that follows our wake. Old Fast Muhammad said, though he hailed from London, Old Fast had the tongue, and often he passed the whisper from the other muscle men aboard. They say it pressed a coup. There is a haunt, the mess boy said proudly. I saw it when we were in the jolly boat. You saw a cloud, Swift said sourly. For I too was in the jolly boat, and I saw no such thing. But the tide of conversation was already moving past him. I saw a haunt of Ireland once, said Glosser, the third mate. I'm no Frenchman to turn tail and run, but I'll tell you, boys, I was damnably scarified. You saw a haunt and lived to speak of it? You're a lucky man, Glosser, the curse said. That I am, boys, Glosser laughed. A jack tar with the devil's own luck. It could be the Dutchman that follows us mused the fresh-faced sailor they called Pretty Paul. Him to curse the name of God. They cannot put into port now, but must sail the seas endlessly, needing only red iron and gore. He seeks out all the old sinners of the sea, to press them for his crew. It could be the mystery, the boy said. A slave ship, where the negroes bound the captain to the mast and forced him to sail till the end of time. That's the wake, said Paul. A mystery where a slave ship turned into a rock. One of its crew were a magician. He killed the Negros first, and then the sailors. And lastly, he bound the cat into the foremast and forced him to stand watch until the devil himself came to claim him. The forecastle had grown quieter at the mention of slave ships. De Kurs watched the boards, Holdfast Mohammed and Glossa. Swift knew then that they'd all worked the trade. Warning of what? The boy was deaf to the silence swelling around him. And what would a talk kill all aboard? Perhaps it was a Negro he meant, Cobb said, thinking aloud. For plantation men sometimes call Negroes black on account of their complexion. Paul, 
whose own deep tan had been put down as black in the ship's log, scoffed. "'Twas a tar that told me that tale,' he said. "'And twas a tar that sunk the ship. A Yorkshireman.' "'Ah,' Cobb said. Everyone knew it was unlucky to sail with Yorkshiremen. The boy's brow remained furrowed. "'But why would a tar kill all aboard? On a slave ship? "'If you've not sailed under many captains,' Glossus said. The crew laughed the way men do when they're eager to change the subject. "'What do you think, Swift?' said Holdfast Muhammad. Does your patch still hold? It was telling, Swift thought, that the man would now rather talk of leaks than haunt ships. She holds, Swift said. The Minerva has life in her yet. The men settled under the forecastle, listening to the drum of rain above. Swift rubbed his scarred hands together for warmth. He did not think about the song. For three days they labored constantly at pumping. Even the gunner, who'd normally be excused from such work, turned his blackened hands to the pump. Sailors like Swift, who could handle carpenter's tools, did their best to repair the pumps as they choked with sand ballast. Is there else you can do to stop the water? Captain Maxwell was regretting his decision to sail without a carpenter, Swift could tell, but it was too late now. Not this sea, Swift said. We must get to port if we're to save her. The captain nodded and looked over the rain-misted deck to where passengers huddled. A small group of women, merchants and servants, European, Indian and Malay, seeking relief from cramped quarters. So be it, he said. We'll set what sail we can and make for the coast. Suddenly, the captain's eyes widened. What is that? Alarmed, Swift squinted his eyes against the rain. At the rear of the ship, a small light wandered erratically up the mizzen mast. For a moment, Swift thought it was a man carrying a candle, and he was filled with anger at whatever fool would bring an open flame into the rigging. Then, he saw how the flame moved, lithely, as though it were alive. St. Alamo's fire, one of the Taurus murmured. Quick, mark where she lands. Best get below decks now, Captain Maxwell advised his passengers, his voice betraying a hint of strain. The wind's picking up. The flame flew suddenly to the middle of the ship and soared to the top of the main mast. It hovered there, about a foot above the spar. A Superro Santo, it guides the haunt to us. It predicts how many will drown, Atar corrected. If it taught, and only one, it means a storm will soon be over. We should all bid it Godspeed. The flame broke into three pieces and sank towards the deck. Sailors recoiled, scrambling to get out of the way of the spirit fire. The corpus ants hovered over the Minerva's deck boards, still and silent. Three a deck, the captain muttered, almost under his breath. That's no good omen. Swift's mess boy edged forward, studying the triangle of flames with a cat's intensity. Decurs yanked the boy back and cuffed him on the ear. Oh, look, one of the European passengers said. There's more. 
Horrified, Swift followed the passenger's gaze over the side of the vessel to where a hundred or so of the tiny flames reeled and spun. Beneath the corpuscence, the ocean burned like witch's oil, green and blue. Allahumma ramataka arju, prayed one of the Muslims. Fala takilni ile nasi an. Wish them Godspeed, the captain ordered, his voice thick. And see to your lines. Have you... have you ever seen that? The boy asked as his messmates hurried to their stations. St. Elm's fire, and so many of them. What does it mean? Swift had no answer. Around him, he could feel the wind rising. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. After I'm no cat and I'm killed, no albatross, Glossa said in the mess. Above the starboard watch's head, the second day of the gale howled and roared. I've whistled down no wind, and yet death fires reel about our rigging, and the damned follow our wake, sending good tars to their deaths. It's not the haunt ship that made a crew lose his footing, said Holdfast. The Lascars say he had hungry eyes. It would a haunt ship that killed him, Glosser said firmly, and it'll kill us until we give it what it wants. Swift's throat was dry. He wanted no part in this. And what does it want? Decur said sharply. Have you hailed that vessel, Glosser? Have you taken a message from the dead? Oh, no fool decurs to hail a haunt. No, Glosser said. In dreams I heard it so. My lost brother, he came to me last night. His mouth was was full of seaweed and his shoes full of sand. In his hands, he held a copy of our crew's list, burning and smouldering. And as I looked closer, I saw one of them names of fire. And I knew then, it was Jonah who cursed us. Whose name was it? The boy sounded a bit too eager. If I had more letters, I could tell you, Glosser said. But I'm no reading man. 
We have a Jonah aboard, and the Hawk ship wants him. That's all I need to know. The rain drummed above their heads. The mess table suspended from the ceiling creaked on its chains. And what do you wish us to do, Glosser? Decker's words jabbed the air. Hunt down a Lascar to hang. For so they did on your last birth, or so I'm told. There was a glitter in Decker's eye. He was one of those who thought the captain had made a poor choice in Glossa, that the position of third mate should have gone to a more senior seaman. The old fear thrilled through Swift. He shook his head warningly at the curse. Glossa was a mate now, after all, and had the power of the lash. Old Fast Muhammad looked up from the swinging mess table, his face grave. Is that true, Glossa? I will pass no whisper for you if it's so. Glosser waved his hand. That was a different matter, he said. A theft. The captain would not look kindly on you if you stir mutiny among the Lascars, Decur said. His eyes met Swift's and Swift knew Decur's expected him to speak up, to draw on his authority as the other old hand in the mess. Swift dropped his gaze. Glosser forced a smile on his face. Now, now, fellas, he said. What's this talk of mutiny? I ask only that you keep your ears and eyes open, that's all. There's no more than good tar should do. Tension loomed around them, and then the boy spoke up. Perhaps the haunt is a mutiny ship, he said helpfully. Like the eagle. Perhaps it's your ass, Cop said. The men laughed, but Glossa gave to Kurs a sidelong glance, and Swift knew it was not over between them. Three days later, the gale wind still blew, and the ship pitched low and heavy. The waves ran mountains high. Swift, his arms numb with fatigue, slipped across the wet deck to his station. They would keep the Minerva before the wind with bare poles. At three bells, a sailor rushed up from below to shout in the captain's ear. Someone else took up the cry, the words straining over the roar of the wind. The waters reached the lower deck! Captain Maxwell kept his eyes on the yards. Keep your stations! He shouted, but his words were muffled by the gale. The Minerva veered... Lashed though he was, Swift had to grasp a cleat to hold his footing. Looking towards the main mast, he saw to his horror that the reefed sail had come loose. One of the knots had been poorly tied. Perhaps the dead sailors, perhaps Swift's own. And now, they might die for it. The Minerva lurched as the loose sail caught the wind. Captain Maxwell, to his credit, did not hesitate. Stand by and cut away the mast! The sailor closest to the axe stood stupefied, his gaze transfixed by the terrible swell of the sail. Hold fast, Muhammad undid his rope anchor and slid his way over to the axe. Balancing like a man on a tightrope, he carried it over the tilting deck to the tallest mast of the ship. Some of the landsmen moved to join him, machetes in hand. The sharp crashes of their blows were muted by the deafening wind. Swift could not help but turn to watch the mainmast shudder. After an age, 
The mast sagged sideways and with agonizing slowness, tilted into the ocean. Such was the wind sound that he could not hear it fall, but he saw the mast drop, and saw also the terrifying snarl of rope and timbers that moved with it. No, Swift said. They had not cut away the rigging properly. He ducked as the stays tore loose, wood splintered, heavy wooden blocks careened across the deck. The captain shouted orders into the wind, but no one could hear him. Horrified, Swift watched the ocean rise up behind the labored gunwale. Distracted, the helmsman had let the ship broach too. Now broadside to the wind, the Minerva's deck tilted into a wall of water. The wave smashed across the deck. Swift grabbed hold of a chest, struggling to keep his footing as warm seawater drenched him. The ship's bell clanged faintly, desperately. Abandoned ship. A Malay woman staggered out of her hatchway. Swift stretched a hand to her, grabbing her by the wrist. Help me, he shouted to his fellow sailors. He could not hear his own words above the wind roar, but the curs, clinging to the gunwale, nodded. Together, they managed to pull the confused woman, her heavy skirts darkening with water, back to the quarter deck. Swift looked for a stray sheet with which to lash her to the standing rigging, but the water on the deck seemed to be washing ever higher. Keep a vertical rope between your legs, he yelled in her ear and stepped onto the horizontal rat lines. Together, he, the woman, and Decurs climbed up, away from the ocean. He could hear faint screams from below. The lower decks were almost fully submerged. One or two of the passengers must be searching for air against the ceiling. It would not last long. Captain Maxwell clung to the standing rigging above their heads. He nodded upwards, gesturing that the woman should enter the crow's nest. They passed her silently through the lubber's hole, then followed themselves. A collection of passengers clung to each other on the firmer footing of the crow's nest, limbs slipping and flailing as the ship rolled. Swift kept his arm locked around a shroud, as did the curs. After a time, the wind died. Cries and prayers drifted up from the rigging calls to God and to Allah. The relentless wash of waves surrounded them. How many do you think are clinging to this mast? The curse said in his ear. Look down. Swift did and saw a muddle of bodies. Thirty, maybe forty souls clung to the mizzen, dangling above the seas. If the mast collapsed, they would all perish. Swift followed the curse down climbing recklessly, hand over hand. Pulling out his belt knife, he sawed at the sling ropes that bound the mizzen yard to the mast. Beside him, Decurs did the same. The yard arm sagged, then dropped away, releasing its weight with a flurry of sail. Below them, someone screamed. They rested in the rigging, swaying back and forth in the glowering night. It seemed the Minerva would not sink, This sometimes happened when water had covered the initial leak and the ship carried a wood cargo, but she could not sail either. The Minerva was not a ship anymore.
and not yet a wreck. Something in between. Dawn cracked the sky but brought no hope with it. The sea ran mountains high, raising and plummeting the remains of the Minerva into the troughs of its waves. Men and women clung to wet rigging while the spray of wind-driven foam whirled about them. Most held to the mizzenmast rigging. A few sailors near the front of the ship had managed to scramble up the foremast. The stump of the main mast had offered no purchase to anyone. Somehow, through all of this, the ship stayed afloat. Though its upper deck was going to pieces, a strew of boards and ropes. The Minerva seemed to have found her level. She might float like this for many days, Swift realized. Swift climbed up to the crow's nest to check on the passengers. A European woman on the mizzen top was shivering. She was clad only in a shift and straw petticoat. Swift offered her his jacket. Thank you, sir, she said. My name is Mrs. Newman. I am much obliged. Captain Maxwell, his collar turned up, stared at the waves. Looking down at the swamped ship, Swift racked his brains, searching for something that could save them. The jolly boat was gone, dragged beneath the waves. Perhaps they could fashion a raft. The quarterneck beneath the mizzen was bare when the waves receded, but the violence of the sea was such that nobody dared climb down to her for fear of being carried away. Someone will find us, surely, said Mrs. Newman. Oh, I, Captain Maxwell said. I surely will. He did not sound convinced. The man kept staring at the ocean, his face set. Swift did not like his look. I'll go below, Swift said, and uh, see if there's anything useful in the wash. He said it as much to the passengers as to the captain. They should know that things were being done. But as he climbed down the rigging, he felt despair wash over him. They were clinging to the remains of two masts above the remains of a ship that could no longer sail. They were at the mercy of the wind and current now, in the Bay of Bengal, in monsoon season. He climbed around the shivering sailors and landsmen until the rigging grew too crowded to pass. Embracing the shrouds, he watched the flotsam that swept to and across the quarter deck, hoping to spy something useful, knowing that even if he did, the waves were too high to fetch it. Resigned, Swift climbed back to the upper rigging. He rested beside the gunner, who had taken up position below the crow's nest. Do you think it a sin to eat a man? The gunner said. The question made Swift's scalp crawl. Swift had little to do with the officer during the voyage. It was pirates and Indian Ocean slavers the gunner watched for. And mutiny, of course. By God, sir, Swift said. It will not come to that. I've been wrecked before, the gunner replied. It will come. He rested his chin on a rat line and closed his eyes. The sun stood overhead, vertical and bloody. 
still, the Minerva did not sink. Swift's throat was beginning to ache with thirst. He fumbled for a still damp corner of his shirt. Tilting it to his mouth, he succeeded in squeezing free a drop or two. This is how it starts, the gunner said, watching him. His eyes were sunken and bloodshot, a sure sign of thirst. When we are driven to drink salt water, that's when the destruction comes. You should not talk so much, Swift said. He realized as soon as he spoke that he left off the obligatory sir, but the man did not deserve it, and he could not whip Swift now. You'll scare the women. The gunner shrugged to show it did not matter and lay back against the shrouds. We could dip our coats, said a voice from below. Glancing down, Swift recognized his mess boy, huddled between two lascars. He was surprised at his own surge of relief. He was glad the boy had lived. The boy said again in a small voice, Captain Inglefeld in his narrative said he dipped his coat in the water and lay against it, so the water seeped into his flesh and left the salt on his skin. Is such a thing possible? A tar dug into a lower rat line sounded doubtful. Let us try, Swift said. He did not say, and will at least keep us busy. Anything was better than lying endlessly against this swaying grid of ropes, thinking on death. He was a sailor. When death came calling, he wanted it to catch him doing something useful. A sailor donated his jacket. They fastened a rope belt to it and passed it down the ladder so the lowest man could dip it into the ocean before passing it back up. It was a laborious, careful task on a swaying mast, exactly the thing to occupy a man and keep his thoughts from dreadful tales. The women, however, had no such action to take. When Swift clambered up to the crow's nest, he saw Mrs. Newman weeping, the other women staring straight ahead. Their skin had begun to blister in the heat. Swift passed the wet coat to the women first and showed them how to daub their arms with it. Mrs. Newman moved slowly, as if in a dream. Take your time, Swift said, as kindly as he could. How bad is it? she asked. Truly? We're still afloat, Swift said. Perhaps a passing ship will spy us. Indeed, he lied. I thought I heard a gun last night. We're not the only ship in the sea. Aye, muttered a sailor below. Would have rather we were alone than with the ghost ship alongside. Mrs. Newman's nostrils flared. She looked for all the world like a small animal, trembling inside a Rangoon market cage. What is he speaking of? What does he mean? It's, it's nothing, Swift said. Just Taw's talk. He could have kicked the man. Don't you worry about her, the gunner said, as Swift retook his position on the standing rigging. She'll outlast us all. Her time always does. Night descended on them like a cloud. Though the weather was warm, Swift found himself shivering. Now that the wind had died, the groans and cries of terrified people surrounded him. The song, he thought, but he was not there. This was a different ship. 
swift walk with a start. Something, a feather, a wing, had brushed his cheek. He thrust the bird away before it could peck out his eyes. Forgive me, Mr. Swift, a woman's voice said. Looking up, he saw the faint outline of Mrs. Newman's face peering at him. A strip of fabric, the coat, dangled in front of her. I only thought, oh, is that a sail? Hope surged through Swift as he adjusted himself on the ropes, trying to get a better look at the ocean behind him. Something stirred in the haze of darkness, something pale and large. A sail, came an exultant voice from the forecastle. A sail to starboard! The shape turned. For one wonderful moment, Swift saw it clearly. A square rigger, full to the wind. Does anyone have a pistol? A gunshot's what we need. Another sailor hallooed into the wind. Decur started forward in his ropes. Do not hail that ship! What? Now Swift was fully awake. He glanced back at the vessel. This time, he saw what Decur saw. The way the clouds slitted their gaze through the ship's sails. The way her edges blurred with light. Do not hail that ship, the curse shouted. From the foresail, he heard a shout in Malay. Angry voices rose from below. Others were realizing the danger. And yet, the hallowing man would not stop. Perhaps he was a landsman. Perhaps he was desperate enough to not care about the consequences. Ahoy! the man yelled. Bare-chested, he leaned out from the mizzen his shirt fluttering in his hand as an improvised flag. We're here! The man's body flew away from the rigging. His arms and legs bewildered themselves into the air as he fell into darkness. The sailor who'd pushed him leaned back in to the congratulations of his fellows. Too late, Dekers whispered. Swift raised his gaze. The ghost ship was turning their way her cobweb sails filling with impossible wind. Her whiteness was a loathsome thing, the white of a bone pushed through the skin, the white of a shark's tooth as it eats a man alive. What, what is that? Mrs. Newman said in wonder. Her words called Swift back to himself. Look away, madam, he said. Do not gaze upon that ship. Your soul depends on it. He turned his face to the shrouds. The moaning, heaving noise of the wreck faded into a new kind of silence in which Swift could hear only the breathing of the wind and the waves. Light moved over the rigging. He squeezed his eyes shut. In the distance, someone wailed. The rigging trembled, then stilled. After a long quiet, the maid spoke, her voice traveling far in the stillness. Ship's gone, she said, and added, It took. In the afternoon, a group of men from the lower rigging tried to swim over to the foremast. The waves crashed over them. Four of them struggled through the spray to the mast and clambered up to the foretop. One of them looked like his messmate, Holdfast. 
A shout drew Swift's attention to one of the less lucky ones, a man whose head now bobbed far outside the ship, drifting further and further away. Soon, Swift lost sight of him altogether. The Tars had no shoes to eat. They'd worked the Minerva barefoot in the Lascar style. Some tried gnawing the leather on the rigging, but soon laid off, declaring it too bitter to be endured. Instead, they made do with scraps of canvas and pieces of lead, which they passed up and down the line. You should not eat that, Mrs. Newman croaked as Swift took up a piece of lead the size of a coin. It's poisonous. Swift put the lead into his mouth. It tasted like nothing, like the air itself. He sucked on it, enjoying the temporary sensation of moisture on his tongue. The haunt, someone said wearily. It's here. The sun was still in the sky, and yet there the ghost ship was, a miasma against the waves. It approached silently, the way Swift had seen sharks approach a woman struggling in the water. He turned his head away, but this time he saw. White tendrils slashed out from the haunt, ropes that were not ropes. Some twisted around limp bodies, dead passengers, Swift thought, or the tars who drowned earlier. But one arced past him, right past him, and snatched a man from the mizzen top. Swift's last glimpse of Captain Maxwell was of the man staring straight in front of him, too terrified to scream. Below them, someone did scream. The ropes under Swift's hands pulled taut. For a dreadful moment, he thought the entire rigging might go, ripped free by this man fighting for his life. But then the ropes sagged back in place. Behind him, the man's scream faded into a strange and awful distance. That is no ship, Mrs. Newman said in a small voice. Swift chewed his piece of lead to powder and swallowed it down. Did you smell it? Decurs asked. Swift was caught off guard. The haunt. The old salt said that ghosts had a smell, a stench by which a lure-steep sailor would know them. I did not catch it. I did. Decura said. It smelled like sick and pus swept together on a hot deck. It smelled like a hold full of shit and fear. I know that smell. So do you. Swift felt ill. I smell nothing, he said. I think I saw her netting when she came about, Decura said. Swift pressed his forehead against the rat line. He could feel the rough fibers of the rope cutting into his skin. You think she's a slaver? The word surprised him. Swift had not thought to speak, not out loud. Aren't most ghost ships slavers? They are in the tales. Decurs leaned forward to eye the snoring gunner, then lowered his voice. I know you'd been in the trade by the guinea scars in your legs, he said. 
I, and by the scars on your back, you sailed under a hard man. They're all hard men, Swift said. I, but some are harder than the devil himself. The curs leaned into his shroud, his face in shadow. Were you articled? I was. Woke up on the tavern floor with a crimp holding a paper in front of me. They said I'd signed. So what could I do? There was a sour taste at the back of Swift's throat. I was in debt as prison, he said. I took the guinea door. A hard choice, Nakur said. Not for me, Swift said. Not Ben. He remembered how Bessie's hands had twisted as the captain described the offer. Swift's debt paid. If only he'd agree to sail aboard a slaver. And he remembered watching Emily clutching the bent twig she called a doll, thinking how tired he was of watching his child play in a prison cell. Swift was no fool. He'd expected to die on that voyage, as most slave ship sailors did, from disease or from the captain's beatings. But with his debt paid... His family would be free. He had not known then that how his debt would accumulate on board. That it would be not one voyage, but two. Then three that he would owe. Bessie and Emily were long dead now. But Swift's debt was still alive. Out there somewhere. Looking for him. Beware, beware the bite of Benin. Decur said. As one comes out for forty goes in. Well, we're the ones who came out. And now here we are. And here's the haunt ship. Come to collect. The gunner laughed. The sound jolted them both. They had not realized the man was awake. <laughs> you think the haunt comes for you. Oh, how fine you are in all your sins. Me? I have drawn lots to eat men. I have cracked a boy's leg open and sucked the marrow from it. I have heard this talk before of curses and providence, I, and eaten the flesh of those who talk so. Nakur shifted away from the man. He climbed downwards, not caring that he had to contort himself around the bodies on the rigging. Swift followed, but he could still hear the gunner talking after them. Here's your truth, the gunner called. The haunt comes like the wind comes. You fools think it comes for your sins because you want to believe that there's justice in the world? There isn't any. He's mad. Nakura said when they reached the lower rigging. We'll all go mad here. They hung on the ropes and watched the deck below. The sea was calmer now. A few sailors had left the rigging and were trying the quarter deck, staggering about on the wet boards. We should get the passengers below to stretch their legs while they can, Swift thought. We should build a raft. Glossa was right, Nakura said after a time. We must have a reckoning. They had come, finally, 
to speaking of the trade. A captain stood the other negroes on deck so they could watch. We had lines tied under the arms of the ringleaders. They ordered them lowered over the side. Said Cobb. Go on, said Glossa. The remnants of the starboard watch had gathered on the abandoned crow's nest for their consultation. Far below, passengers and sailors tested out the limits of the quarter deck, as third mate Glossa was their judge. As far as they knew, he was the only officer left on the wreck, save the gunner, whose strange calm they all suspected. Cobb looked away as though scanning the horizon. Swift knew his gaze had gone somewhere else. When the waters turned red, he gave the order to hoist them up. The sharks had taken number three's legs off at the knees. I thought she was already dead. But when we lowered her again, she started screaming. So I suppose she had only fainted. How long did it take? Glossa was precise. It was important to focus on the facts in such matters. Think an hour before all three were dead. The captain cut the ropes in the last one. It took too long. Glossa nodded, satisfied. Did you not protest the order? The boy exclaimed. How he had maintained his capacity for horror, Swift did not know. Cobb shrugged, his sunken eyes flat and hard, like sea-washed stones. Who else? said Glossa, ignoring the boy's question. Not the usual things. We all know them. He paused. Swift wondered if the boy could hear everything that lurked in those words. But he stared, bewildered. Pretty Paul's face was closed. This was a current that flowed past them, the sailors who had not worked the trade. And what have you done, Glossa? Dekura's voice sliced knife sharp. Glossa scratched his chin. Like the rest of them, his blistered skin had begun to tear, hanging off in dead strips. I've lashed and pickled, Glossa said. I, I've done the usual things, but not to the children. Not like some. Nakuris blinked and looked away. Did you not pass the whisper? The boy was still incensed at Cobb's story. Mr. Clarkson and his abolitionists are forever combing the docks, asking Taurus to testify. Do you get to pass the whisper at least? Why, Cobb said sourly. And didn't some Bristol boys club Mr. Clarkson and try to feed him to the sea? When the owners pay good coin to kill Cambridge gentlemen, what do you think the chances are for a common tar like me? But Negro seamen... Equiano, him what wrote the narrative, the boy said stubbornly. They pass his whispers for Tars. They pass the whisper on the Zong. Even Swift's blood drummed in his ears. And they haven't killed him yet. I had a shipmate who passed the whisper once, Decur said. His voice had gone low and strange. Listen, he said, fixing them with his gaze. There was a ship. She sailed under a hard man. A negro caused trouble on the hold. Number 37. So this Captain Bremer, the curse face contorted for a moment, 
as though he would like to spit, but thought better of it. This bremer. He ordered the man whipped and pickled with salt water. You know, he said to Glossa, the usual things. But this captain, this captain, he went further. He hung the man up on deck and tortured him with thirst. He would give the negro no water. He said, though that number was strong and would have fetched a good price in Antigua, he'd give him no water but urine and no food but shite to eat. The captain's own shite. The curs gave a strangled laugh. The captain sent his cabin boy to fetch it, but when he made the boy go, a boy younger than you, mind, he said to their mess boy. Eleven years old he was, and new to the trade. He didn't know how it is, he added, to Swift. Swift nodded, hoping to curse would fall silent, knowing that he would not. There was a kind of madness that came upon slave ship sailors sometimes. A fever in their blood. Some blamed it on the African air, but it was more than that. And a curse, blasted raw by sun and wind, had it now. It was this fever and not courage that sent tars into the courts to testify, knowing they'd be killed in the alley afterwards knowing their wife and mother would be brutalized on the streets. It was this rage Swift knew that sent a tar to point his hand in court that made him into a monstrous revenant and was not a man at all, but some dead, alive thing returned from the sea. A witness. He didn't know, the curse repeated, and he refused the order. He wiped his face with his skinny hand, considering. The captain had him flogged and brined, of course. Sixty lashes, but it wasn't enough. He dragged the boy up the deck and put a plank over him. He ordered us to walk on it, he said dispassionately. He stamped on his breast so he could hear his bones splinter. The boy's shit came out of him, and the captain forced it down his throat. Then he hung the boy up on the mainmast. He gave him and the negro the urine to drink, and forbade us all to bring water or food to them. For three days they hung there while we worked. I don't think anyone dared to try to give them water. I know I didn't. The captain gave the boy 18 lashes each day, even as he died. When I sewed him into his sail, his flesh felt like jelly to the touch. His body was purple and swollen huge. You could not tell it was a child anymore. The sharks took them both. Decurus glared at them. I did not pass the whisper, but my shipmate did. Fourteen years old he was. I found his body floating by the docks. 
I said nothing. I said nothing for all my days sailing the triangle. I said nothing after. Only the cabin boy spoke up. And my shipmate. Children. Only them. Dakaris rubbed his chin again. I think you know what must be done, he said to Glossa. Glossa shifted uncomfortably. Dakaris' story seemed to have taken the wind out of his sails. Is there anyone else? There was a ship, Swift thought. He could feel the words in his mouth. She was called Bazong. There is no one else, Dekur said, cutting off anything Swift might say. He stood up, abruptly, wobbling on his weakened legs. Swift reached out to steady him. No, Dekur said, and patted Swift's hand. Swift released his grip. Shipmates, Dekur said sternly. I leave you in a sorry state. But if I have accursed you, I do remove it now. If any of you live, carry word to my sister. But do not tell her about the ship. Then, before anyone could intervene, Decurus tipped himself backwards. Sky bloomed through the space where he had been. Swift leaned forward, searching the ocean with his eyes. But the curse had already vanished under the waves. He did not come up again. After a while, Glossa shifted his weight. He did not look at them. We must get off this wreck, he said. We must get off today. The sea was hot and smooth, like a silver plate left in the sun. This is our chance, Glossa said. He'd been signaling the men on the foremast with a handkerchief. They, in turn, had employed themselves in making a raft from the foreyard and spritsail yard, lashed together with ropes and spars rescued from the flotsam. In the afternoon, they launched her, paddling with pieces of plank they had whittled with their belt knives. The survivors from the mizzenmast waited to greet them. Avast! said a sailor on the raft, bearing the blade on his belt knife. The raft cannot support you all. Only the strongest can come, said another. All hands must paddle if we're to make it to shore. None of the women, the knife man said in a kindly tone. He gestured with the point of his blade to the Malay maid. She guessed the meaning of his words and stepped back a few paces, dropping to her knees in the few planks that remained of the quarter deck. Cobb stepped forward. I've got life in me yet, he said. I'll sail with you. And I, said one of the Lascars. Blossa stepped forward. You'll need more help to find the land, he said. I can reckon the stars. They motioned him forward. As Glossa stepped forward, the mess boy caught at his shirt sleeve. This is wrong, he said. You cannot leave the passengers here to die. Glossa snatched his shirt away. Where and when they die is up to God, not me. He stepped forward onto the bobbing raft, sinking his weight low to keep his footing. 
What about you, Swift? Holdfast Mohammed looked up from his corner of the raft. You've got a good hand with carpentry. We could use you. Why? Swift said reluctantly. He looked at their raft. A shaky net, spars, and canvas lashed together with rope. But I'll stay here. He did not know what decision he'd make until the words were out of his mouth, but there they were. You know how it will go if you stay, Old Fast Muhammad said in a low voice. Swift appreciated that he did not speak of dying in front of the passengers. Oh no, Swift said. We'll stay. Glossa looked at the boy. You should come with us, he said. No, the boy said, trembling with self-righteousness. Had Swift ever been that young? I'll stay here. Glosser shrugged and took the paddle handed to him. The raft took on three more sailors and two of the merchants. Then they set off, paddling determinedly away from the Minerva. Swift sank to his haunches and watched them go. They were trying, he knew, to be well clear of the Minerva before the haunt returned. Do you think they'll make it? The boy asked. His voice had lost its ring of certainty now that the raft grew smaller in the distance, now that the moaning from the rigging was rising around them again. I do not know, Swift said. He put his hands to the shrouds and climbed back up the rigging. Mrs. Newman had resumed her place in the crow's nest. Those men on the raft, she said through cracked lips. Have they gone to seek help? I have. Swift said. The gunner was slumped in the ropes. Ugly red ulcers dotted his skin, and it was only by his breathing that Swift knew he was alive. Swift took up his old position by the man's side. Staring straight ahead, he could almost believe that Decurs was still beside him, perhaps a step or two down on the rat lines. He waited for the haunt to return. On the third night, they heard screaming over the water. Not a lot of screaming. Two, maybe three voices. One went on for some time. That was the raft, the gunner said. I cannot abide a raft anymore. Not after what I've seen. Swift opened his eyes. The gunner had died two days ago, and his corpse slowly rotted in the flotsam below. On a slave ship, the sharks would have found his body already. But this was the Minerva, and the dead man studied Swift with desiccated eyes. You will drink the salt, the dead man said. It'll help for a while, and then it'll drive you mad. Then it was not the gunner beside him on the ropes, but the governor, large as life. He had his pistol on his hand, same as he'd had on the Zong. Swift felt like laughing at the man, just as he had all those years ago. You did not threaten a slave ship sailor with a quick death. They'd lost all fear of such things. It was the slow death and the slow pain that they feared. The thirst. The pickling. The sharks. Water. Someone croaked above him. It was the Malay maid. 
She dangled the coat to him. Swift took it from her and wrapped it around his shoulders, for his hands were losing their grip. He descended the rat line slowly, step by step, stepping carefully around the living and the dead. The sea was calm. The boy lay stretched out on the quarter deck. Swift shook him, and he stirred. You should climb, Swift said. The waves will wash you away in the next gale. I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Swift, the boy said. I do not think I'll have the strength for it. Swift looked up at the rigging. The numbness in his muscles told him he did not have the strength to pull the boy up. But he grabbed the boy under his arms and, leaning his weight back, managed to pull him to the rail. The stars overhead made fantastic patchworks of light. They reminded Swift of the St. Elmo's fire that had danced on board, warning the sailors of their deaths. Such a beautiful thing, he thought in wonder. So beautiful. He eased out his rope belt and lashed the boy to the quarter deck rail. Then, He lowered the coat into the sea. He dribbled some drops of salt water into the boy's mouth. Lowering his own head to the deck, Swift lapped at the waves like an animal. The wetness in his mouth shocked him with a relief that surged through his body. Then, he saw the haunt. It lay two points abaft the port beam, an eerie shine on the ocean. Its tendrils were out again, touching the water so delicately it resembled one of those strange underwater flowers that bloom and curl in foreign tide pools, and was feeding off the men on the raft, he supposed. Or was that something the gunner had told him? Swift soaked the coat in salt water and placed it on his back. The precious water cut icy paths across his shoulders as he climbed finding every groove in his shrinking body and pinching him with cold. Still, he climbed, and at the crow's nest he handed the three women who'd taken refuge there the sodden coat. They sucked at it eagerly. Will we die soon, do you think? Mrs. Newman's eyes had sunken so far it was almost a peeling skull Swift looked into, and not a face. Don't worry, they told them. It'll all be over soon. But it wasn't. The living and the dead lay side by side on the ropes. The thick, sweet smell of death lay over everything. Swift climbed up and down the rigging, wetting the coat and passing it to those too weak to move. The boy was still alive. He could tell by the way his limbs quivered when the waves washed over them. No Swift could no longer detect the sound of breath when he dribbled water into the corner of the boy's mouth. In the evening, when the air began to cool, Swift went in search of survivors. He grabbed the bodies he passed on the shrouds. He patted their bloated arms, their naked, festering legs. No one moved. They were as still as if painted upon a painted ship, upon a painted ocean. Mrs. Newman's swollen body sat upright, looking expectantly ahead. From time to time, Swift followed her gaze, trying to make out what she saw. Well, 
the governor said. What will it be, men? To die of thirst, a cruel death? He gestured again with that foolish pistol of his. The song's crew stared back at him. They'd been working on less than a quart of water since entering the torrid zone. The rainwater casks that loomed so lovely behind the governor's pistol were never for the likes of them, and they knew it. A vote, the first mate said. A vote on this. He despised them all, Swift could tell. What's the captain say? Captain Collingwood's sick abed, the governor said. And Kelsall's been taken out of the chain of command. The situation is clear. The cargo must be jettisoned. Not all. Only the sick and the dying. Collingwood has given me his list. For your insurance monies, you... You want the cargo jettisoned. What's murder, sir? Said the first mate. I'll have no part in it. A vote, the boatsman said. We must have a vote. Silence on the Zong. A parched boat on a parched ocean. Who votes yay? The governor asked. He raised his own hand and looked meaningfully around. A few of the officers hesitantly raised their arms in the air. If you vote yay, the governor said, I'll see to it that every tar here gets a cup of water in his ration. Swift raised his hand. Listen, there was a ship. She was called the Zong. She was low on water, or so they said. Part of her cargo needed to be jettisoned, or so they said. Her cargo was a collection of humans in chains. They pushed the women and children out one by one through the cabin portholes. The first ones went quietly enough, but the others struggled. The slaves could hear the screaming as it drifted through the hold. They understood they were going to die. You have no idea how much even a sick child can fight you when she knows you're dragging her to her death. The governor kept pointing. This one, he said. That one. They took the healthy along with the sick. The governor couldn't read, Kelsall said. So what was the point of a list? Some of the tars joined in. This one. A woman scratched Swift's arm as he reached for her chainmate, so he grabbed her by the hair. This one. It is no great thing to drown a slave or two when they are sick, when they have caused trouble. It is a usual thing. They jettisoned 54 the first day. The governor said the number should be noted down for the insurance claim. 54. The next day, they marched the men up to the quarter deck, this time with the chains and shackles still on. They'd fight less that way, the governor said, and the chains would drag them down quicker. 42. They had to stop for a time to see to the sails. One of the Negroes had some English. He said all in the hold were begging to live, promising to survive on no meat and no water until port. 38. Ten women committed suicide, leaping from the deck to join those in the waves below. 
48. One man managed to climb back aboard. They kicked him from the netting into the screaming ocean. 144 in all. Or maybe more. Despite the governor's efforts, they'd lost count halfway through. The usual thing. The descent into the stinking hold. The lash with the cat. The feel of a man's arm resisting as you haul him forward. The shouts. The crying. The pleas. Usual things. Save that first day, when Swift rushed above because the stench of the hold was getting to him, that was all. And he rested his burning arms on the gunwale and saw a pregnant woman giving birth in the waves. I did not pass the whisper, Swift told the boy. Someone else did. I don't know who. Before the second trial, one of the Gregson men found me on a dock and told me, We know you're a fine man. We know you'll remember what's good for you. But they never called me to testify. Not one of the seventeen crew were called. I never did get to find out what kind of man I was. He raised his hand to scratch one of the scabs beneath his eyes and noticed idly that his fingernail had fallen off. He did not remember losing it. The boy's corpse was swollen. Its swollen limbs still floated every time a wave washed in. In and out. That was a ship, Swift said to himself, trying out the words. The sun stared down. Swift waited patiently as the haunt approached. On inspection, he agreed with Mrs. Newman that it might not be a ship at all. The haunt had the general look of a ship. The hull, the masts, the sails. But its cobweb gauziness confused his gaze. He could not figure out how such a thing could sail. He supposed he would soon learn. The haunt was selective in the corpses it chose. It paused over one body, then took the one beside it, lifting it into the air in a slow arc. One of the corpses it pulled from the rigging fell to pieces, a torn limb splashing into the darkness. The haunt continued its delicate search, serene. When one of its glowing tendrils passed near him, Swift stiffened. Some part of him still wanted to live, but then he forced himself to relax. He no longer had the strength to fight it if he ever had. The tendril rushed over his shoulder, a prickle of heat and light. It had a dry, horrid smell, like burning bone. The tendril drifted over to the boy, wrapped itself around his torso, lifted him up. Swift's knots held. He was proud of that. But another tendril arced out of the sky, ripping the rope away, and the boy was carried aloft. The haunt's light faded, its too white glare dimming to the muted color of the moon. Its graceful tendrils curled back to the ship like the closing petals of a flower. Slowly, relentlessly, 
It turned away from the Minerva. No, Swift said. This last outrage was too much. You don't get to leave me here. I'm the last one living, aren't I? The Jonah! He expected the ship would turn back at the sound of his voice, but the haunt sailed on. It retreated with surprising speed into the darkness. Cold flooded Swift's body. They could not leave him here. Come back! The words were hard to force through his parched mouth. He threw himself on his belly, scrabbled forward to the water's edge, palmed in water to wet his tongue. Come back! His voice was louder now. They would surely hear him. Darkness wrapped itself around him. He could not see the haunt at all. Swift lay alone on the rotting deck, alone in the silent sea. He sometimes thought he heard the dead conversing above him, but he could not make out their words. He expected them to return, the dead. Surely they would come back. Decur as Glossa, the boy, the women, Bessie, Emily, this little girl as he'd seen her last, with the blood cough dribbling down her dress. With the slaves. Number 23, at least. Or maybe the woman from the waves. Surely they had something to say to him. Some last accusation to make. But they did not come. The sun pressed down. The clouds hid the moon. There passed a weary time. Something edged into the corner of his vision. A triangle of white. A sail. Swift lifted his head. A wave of relief filled him. It was the haunt, come to put things right. But the sail was too solid. They could not see through it. It was, he realized wearily, a living ship. They watched it pass. There was no reason now to summon it. No one to save. But the silence pressed down on him, heavy and terrible. An agony of silence. Swift tried to speak, but his tongue had withered with thirst. No noise came out. It was too far now to reach the waves that washed the quarter deck. So he raised his arm to his lips, bit down. The warm taste of blood freed his tongue. He croaked, shouted, wordlessly. A cry from the deep. The angle of the ship's sails changed. They'd heard something. Swift let his head sink down again. He floated on the deck, suspended between life and death, between one possibility and the other. But he did not think he could die. Not yet, not yet. There was a name on his cracked lips, a word like the blood in his mouth, a thing he had to tell. You've been listening to Haunt by author Siobhan Carroll. Siobhan Carroll is an associate professor of English at the University of Delaware, where she specializes in British literature from 1750 to 1850, and in modern science fiction and fantasy. 
Readers can find other fiction by Siobhan in Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Ellen Datlow's The Best Horror of the Year Anthology, and indexed on her website. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks, available now on audible.com. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive, dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the Horror Hill for yet another Dance with Darkness, I bid you good night, sleep tight, listener, and whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. You've been listening to Horror Hill, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, as well as a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Jason Hill unless otherwise noted. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Sound design, original music, and final mixing and mastering provided by Felipe Ojeda under the guidance of executive producer and director Craig Groshek. The program's logo was created by Craig Groshek, and this week's artwork provided by Omega Black, unless otherwise noted. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at horrorhill at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of the show. If you enjoyed what you've heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and Horror Hill on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program 
each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more and haven't already, be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for hundreds of free audio horror stories, including more performances from yours truly, and consider supporting us by becoming a patron at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more frightening fiction to haunt your dreams. Until next time, I'm Jason Hill, and you've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast. Good evening, and sweet dreams. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, oh. 